I'm wearing this Reds jersey today as a declaration that their, their baseball season will turn around. If you don't know, the Reds are three and 18 right now. And they, 19. And they accidentally drafted someone in the NFL draft last week. That's how like kind of backwards and messed up they are right now. So we just got to pray that something turns around there. Um, I'm going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. But before I do that, something else I want to just do really quickly. Um, last two weeks ago, Luke and I, Luke's the other executive pastor here, and he actually just had a baby last Friday, so that's amazing. Little, um, that's a picture of the baby right there. <laughs> Baby's name is Oscar, super cool. Jamie, um, Luke's wife, amazing birth. She's doing really well. Um, Luke did all he could, but you know, it was mostly Jamie, okay? So. And another, another person had a baby around here that we haven't, I don't think, mentioned who's on staff, a leader in the church, Nicole Sullivan. She had, yeah. N Nicole is the Northwest Kids Director, so babies through fourth graders. She loves and pastors and leads, and then she has an awesome team with her. But she had a daughter a couple months ago named Etienne and her husband Caleb, so congrats to them. They're amazing. But... Two weeks ago, Luke and I were reconnecting with an old friend, a friend we hadn't seen in like 10 years. And um, I ran into him at a bar and I was like, bro, it's so good to see you. We should hang out. I'll set up a time for you and Luke and I to, to hang out. And so we finally got it together and another one of our old friends came as well. And um, as, we were, as we were hanging out at the Comet in Northside, he goes into this story, begins to tell us this story about a date he had been on recently. And he had met this, this girl online and he said he, it was really, like the first hour of it was going really well. And then just kind of abruptly, about an hour into the date, she said, I wanna tell you something, I'm a Wiccan, I'm a witch. And he was like, oh wow, thanks for telling me that. And uh, just started asking her questions about it and whatever. And then she just told him how she reads people's horoscopes and, you know, um, interprets what the spirit is doing in their life, the spirits are doing in their life through nature and stuff like that. And then she goes to the bathroom and she doesn't come back for like 20 minutes. He's like, what is happening? And when she gets back from the bathroom, she says, he's like, where were you? And she's like, oh, I was reading this guy's horoscope on the way to the bathroom. And uh, he's like, okay. And when I heard that story, the thing that came to my mind was like, what the heck? She's doing power evangelism. This, this person that God loves so much, that God has an amazing destiny for, that he treasures so much, is partnering with darkness and evangelizing the kingdom of darkness over people and speaking death and destruction and pain and... Um, that's why we had all the, like, you know how we said like a bunch of things we talked about? Prophetic Art Open Studio, Kingdom Pursuit Conference, Holy Spirit Night. is because there's a war going on out there. There's a real spiritual battle going on out there. And this, what the church is supposed to do is supposed to be a training ground for us to learn how to operate in the Holy Spirit 
and to operate in God's power and to prophesy God's word in God's life and that we would be trained and equipped and um, filled with the spirit to go and do God's evangelism, to go share God's love and God's light. And so let's just, uh, will you guys stand up? I wanna pray for us. Just to be filled with power and boldness. <clears throat> and you know, Jesus, um, he had an anointing on his life. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, eyesight to the blind. And then Jesus lived his whole life and did all that stuff. Then he died, resurrected, ascended into heaven. And then what happened next? He sent his anointing onto us through the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. He lived a whole life empowered by the Holy Spirit with an assignment. And then he sent the assignment and the power to fulfill the assignment that he had down to the church and down to people who would trust in his name and who would follow him. So Holy Spirit, fall. We just ask for a fresh Pentecost, God. We ask for a fresh filling of your spirit. Don't let us grow dull to your power and to your voice. Don't let our hearts grow cold to the hurting, broken world around us. We rebuke self-preservation in Jesus' name. We rebuke fear. The fear that was released over our world through COVID, we shake that off and we, re we rebuke it in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, that you have trusted us with the, with the assignment you had for us to carry it forward. So I pray, Lord, just put your hand on your heart. God, teach us to abide to a new level. Teach us to remain in you and to um, connect to your love. And I pray that scripture would open up to us in a way that it never has before so that we can abide in you and bear much fruit. And God, I pray for anyone in the room right now who this makes no sense to, I pray that they would still receive the power to um, walk it out. We honor you, Jesus. Thank you for giving us, just thank him. Just say, thank you, God. Wow, you've given us true purpose. It's incredible, Lord. Align our hearts to the true purpose you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. It's Holy Spirit morning, okay? Forget Holy Spirit night. No, come back tonight, okay? It's gonna be even better. Um, so we've been in this series called Following the King, and we're entering into the second section of it right now called the Sermon on the Mount. So what we're gonna do for the rest of this section of this sermon series we're in is stand every time we read that day's scripture together. So I know you just sat down, but in a second, I'm gonna invite you to stand again if you want to. Going Catholic on you. Um, and the reason we're having you stand as we read the scripture every single week, it's gonna be months of doing this, okay? So get ready. Because we're going through the Sermon on the Mount very slowly. It's three chapters that are just so important and um, we're not gonna skim it. We're gonna slowly go through every single section, slow, like very slowly. Um, and 
every week when we read that scripture and as you stand, what we wanted to remind ourselves is that this is a life to be practiced. What Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount isn't just theory and good ideas. It's meant to change the way that we go out and that we come in, the way that we speak, the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we decide. And so rather than sit there and just kind of listen, we're gonna stand every time just to remind ourselves. It's like a prophetic action to say, hey, I'm gonna live the Sermon on the Mount this week. All right, so will you stand back up with me? I have to stand this whole sermon, okay? So you can stand a couple times. Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, you don't have to read it with me, okay, by the way. But you can if you want to, I don't care. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You can sit down. All right. So... What's happened in the scripture just before this, I want to read to you. Matthew 4, 23. And starting in, I think, verse 25, there will be a slide for this. But I'm going to read a couple of verses earlier than I prepared for. And he went throughout all Colerain, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Ohio, and they, brought, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great, and great crowds followed him from Coleraine and the greater Cincinnati area and downtown Cincinnati and Covington and from beyond the Ohio River. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then everything we just read. So what gets lost on us when we read the Bible and when we read all these locations is we didn't, we didn't grow up in Galilee or Judea or Palestine or Syria. Like those aren't terms that, you know, just like immediately call to mind something for us. But the descriptors I just put in there is like, basically compensates for essentially the region and the area that Jesus was ministering in. He's ministering in one area about the size of Coleraine, but the ministry that's happening there is so powerful. I mean, healing every disease 
every affliction, yeah, of course his fame is going to spread. And people are coming from all over the place. People are coming from all over and they're not driving their cars. They're walking days journeys to come and hear the teaching of this man who is cleansing lepers and healing the blind. And the, the picture that I think Matthew is trying to paint for us right here is Jesus had quite a following. He was pretty popular. There's like a lot of momentum and excitement around what's happening. He's being retweeted so much, <laughs> okay? He is going viral right now. Like that's what's happening. And then listen to verse um, five, one and two. Seeing the crowds, that's the theme of that whole scripture I just read. There's these crowds that are flocking to Jesus from all around. So Jesus, seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his crowds came to him? No, his disciples came to him. And he said to them, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Um, will you bring up the medium quote for me, Stella? Okay. This is a quote from a Bible scholar named R.T. France. The crowds, he's talking about this passage I'm talking about right here. The crowds are thus deliberately distinguished from the audience of the discourse, talking about everything Jesus is about to say. That's the discourse. Even though in chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, we shall find that they have been listening to it, perhaps as an outer circle, eavesdropping, if you will, on what he has to say to his disciples. It is explicitly to the disciples that the discourse is addressed. So Jesus, the, what's the point? Why am I telling you this? Jesus had crowds following him, but he knew that his teaching was not for the crowds. The words of Jesus are not for the consumer. <laughs> the words of Jesus are not for the person. Here's how I think of crowds. Crowds are hungry for God, but want him on their own terms. That's what the crowds are. It's someone who's hungry for God, but wants him on their own terms. It's possible to go to church every single Sunday and to never leave the crowds. It's possible to live your entire life trusting in Jesus and having been saved. This is my personal, you know, opinion here, okay? And to never cross the bridge of discipleship. Chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew are for the disciple. If you stay in the crowds and you're thinking what, and I, I, if, if I was in the crowds, or I, you know, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> but if that's where I was living, I would be thinking, well, I know what Jesus just said makes some sense, but I'm not really sure that I, I want to change. <laughs> I'm not really sure that I want to redirect how I think and live in order to line up with what he's telling us to do. Whereas disciples are hungry and they orient their lives around Jesus. A disciple is someone who orients their entire life around Jesus. Now, not just their 
thoughts, not just their thinking, but also their behavior. And there's this dance we do in following Jesus where ultimately everything should come from our heart, but we don't wait for it to come we don't wait for it to come from our heart to manifest it in our behavior if we can help it. <laughs> and so this whole discourse that Jesus is about to go into, and I'm gonna, that my dad unpacked some of last week, I'm gonna unpack some more this week, and then Mike is gonna unpack more of next week, um, is all geared at disciples. Now, a couple more quotes that I wanna read to you that just flesh out the Beatitudes and help them make more sense. Could you do the shortest quote now, Stella? Cool. All right, so this is another awesome, you know, I put the titles of the books on here so you guys could get them if you want. You can know kind of what I'm looking at. So this is from a book called Breakthrough. The teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount were not given in the context of entering the kingdom for the first time. So all this teaching is not about how to get saved. Allah, it's not to the crowds. (laughs) They focus on the quality of life demonstrated by those who have entered the kingdom, responded to the gracious intervention of God, and experienced the new birth. The main questions that God is speaking to, the ones that the messages he's trying to communicate to us are how to get saved other than how to live like a saved person. A question that the Bible doesn't focus a lot of energy on is how to stay saved or how to not lose your salvation or how to make sure that you're saved. That's kind of something that like bats around in our head, right? A lot of times we read scripture and and it's a hard saying. And one of the first things we think is like, well, does that mean that I'm not saved if I don't do that? Or something like that. And like, that's just not the context that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the mindset of, wow, I'm desperate. I hate life. It feels purposeless. It feels empty. What do I do? He's speaking to that person. Then he's also speaking to the person who said, hey, I'm, I'm following you, Jesus. I'm no longer leader of my life. You're leader of my life. I want to live your way. And then he says, okay, here's how you live my way. Those are the audiences that Jesus is speaking to. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're getting is the quality of life demonstrated by those who have entered the kingdom, responded to the gracious intervention of God, and experienced the new birth. We have been born again. No longer of this world. We still live as someone who is born of this world, but now our identity comes from the birth we've received from God. Mystical and weird, I know. Next quote, long quote. All right, here's a really, here's a doozy, guys, all right? Just crack your fingers like this. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of like talk us through this quote because I really like it. That's why I have it up here. The Beatitudes can only be understood against the background. Okay, think, when it says background, think about like context, the backdrop. The Beatitudes can only be understood against the backdrop of the presence of the future. Christians are people who have met Jesus, and to meet Jesus is to meet the end. We have been taken out of this present world and already live by the powers of the age to come. Yet, at the same time, we live in this world. We are caught in the tension between two worlds, 
But the power, reality, and values of the kingdom determine our lives rather than the standards of this world. Okay, so this first statement, let's go back to it. They can only be understood in the context of the presence of the future. What does that mean? Jesus said, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. So what that means is that we have all experienced the end. If you have met Jesus, you've experienced the end. And you might ask, what end am I talking about? Like the end of the world, the end of time, the end of creation, the end of what? It's like, yeah, all of that, okay? A category bigger than all of that. A category bigger than the end of this service. A category bigger than the end of, you know, my rope with my kids, okay? A category that's bigger than any concept you have of the end. The Greek word for, um, the Greek word that's used here is telos, and what it means, another, another way that that word is used is goal. So Jesus is the goal of creation. He is the final picture of what God wants to do on earth. And so when Jesus is present, and here's another piece of information, okay? How Jews thought was this world is going to end and a new world is going to start. And that world is going to be the kingdom world. And in the future, the kingdom world will be here in this world. So Jesus is he's the person from that kingdom world here in this world right now. He is the presence of the future. <clears throat> so what that means for us is that we are people of the future. That's another way to say that we are citizens of heaven. We are of another world. You know, in, in, in Jesus' time, when they say heaven, they're not thinking of a place you go when you die. They had another name for the place you go when you die if you were righteous, and it was called Abraham's bosom. That's what they're thinking of when they talk about the place people go when they die. When they're saying heaven, they're talking about the place where God is fully in control, in charge, and everything that happens is, he's fully, everything that happens is what he wants to happen. Not a place you go and you die, but a realm, a world, if you will, where only what he wants to be done is done. And so these beatitudes we're about to go through, the ones that I'm gonna teach us about, notice this, okay? Let's go to, um, my slide that has verses six through nine on it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Every single one of these is shall. What that tells us is that's supposed to be a trigger for our mind. That this is like a future oriented message. <clears throat> the first two beatitudes are present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the very last one is all about, the, is about present tense also. But this, the sandwich, every, the meat of the sandwich is all about the future. And so I know I'm kind of going a bunch of ways to get here, but what I'm trying to say is there's a future world coming. We, right now, this world is evil, broken, and messed up. 
that future world is already present for anyone who is in Christ. You get to live when you line up with that future world in that future world while you're in this present world. And these Beatitudes are talking about how we live in that future world, how we access that future world life, that future world power, that future world benefit in this present world. Just think of like Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future and you'll understand everything I just said, okay? (laughs) So let's look at these guys and talk about them. I almost just tried to scroll on my Bible. Someone cast the digital demon out of me. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. When we say righteousness, what we should be thinking of is right actions, right thinking, right living. Don't think of it primarily in contrast with sin. Think of it as what is natural for a person with a Jesus heart. That's what righteousness is. It's not good as defined by bad. It is just God's way of existing. That's what righteousness means. So we all have an appetite, right? We all have desires for different things. On Friday night at about 10 o'clock, I was falling asleep, putting my son to bed. I woke up and I was like, okay, I have a desire for sleep right now, but I have another desire for these little nerds candies that are like gummies, but then like dunked in nerds. And I am going to go to the store and get them right now. (laughs) And so I went and did that. And the thing that drove me to do that was my flesh. No, I'm just kidding. The thing that, but seriously, that is literally what drove me to do that was my human wiring carnal desires. You know, Adam and Eve, I believe had flesh. Eve desired something that God told her not to desire. Did she sin just by desiring that? No, she sinned when she took it off of the tree and engaged with it. And so we have these desires, man, that we shouldn't necessarily like, the desire for sex is a good desire. That's a thing that God has put in you. And if you don't have that desire, then that's something you ask God, hey, will you restore that and put that in me, you know? and the desire to eat and drink and to sleep and to be liked and the desire to help others. Like these are all just part of how God has wired humans, Adam, humankind to exist. But it's not as complicated as just our desires to, to live by. We have to actually desire the right thing and at the right time. And when you desire the right thing in the right context of the right time, you're hungering after righteousness. Does that make sense? What this kind of comes down to for me is constantly trying to remind myself what in life is of the utmost value. I love to watch some type of television program at night before I go to bed. Can I have my water bottle? I forgot to bring it up here with me. 
Oh, thanks. I just love TV, guys. Just, all right. But, you know, TV isn't like the best thing for you. <laughs> it's good. It's, it's, I think it's actually great for you in moderation. But it can be taken to a point where it actually is a like bad thing. Okay, anyways. I love to watch some TV before I go to bed, but you know what actually is more important for my soul and blesses me so much is when I can get up in the morning before everyone else in my family and have like 25 to 30 minutes alone with Jesus. Now, at nighttime, when I really want to turn on Guardians of the Galaxy or Parks and Rec or whatever, um, I have to remind myself, hey, what, what do I want more? <laughs> Because like, if I stay up later watching this, it's very unlikely I'm going to be able to get up earlier than my dog needs to poop and my daughter cries. So like, there's a, just a, there's a, there's a intentionality in my heart of, okay, I'm reminding myself, what do I actually want? What do I actually want? And then I try and live that way. I try and discipline my body, discipline my mind. Luckily, the Holy Spirit's got my back here, Okay. It's not doing it by willpower. It's doing it by Holy Spirit power and a little bit of willpower because my name is Wilson. Um, and prioritizing the right thing. So this isn't, my message here isn't like put a rubber band on your wrist and snap it every time you desire the wrong thing. My, desire, my, my uh, mentality here is know the thing that actually satisfies you and then base your life around that. The thing that actually satisfies me and renews me is spending time with Jesus who, by the way, is really there in the morning with me. The thing that doesn't satisfy me and rejuvenate me is watching more TV at night. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here's how I want to define mercy for us. Pre-forgiveness. Mercy is pre-forgiveness. Here's what I mean. It's when you treat people like how you're going to treat them when you forgive them before you even forgive them. That's what mercy is. It's when you treat people like how you're gonna treat them when you forgive them before you even forgive them. What I'm not saying here is that you should stuff your uncomfortable emotions or your pain or the sin or abuse that's been done to you. I'm not saying you should stuff that. What, and I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't um, engage with it and deal with it. Go to a therapist and go to the person and go to your pastor, not me, and talk to them about it and figure it out, okay? Like, I'm not saying stuff it. What I am saying is that you won't even get into the room to do reconciliation unless one of us shows the other person mercy. Unless someone else is walking in pre-forgiveness, you won't even get into a situation where there can be real forgiveness and reconciliation. That's mercy. One of the main ways that we can manifest mercy, we can practice mercy, we can show mercy is through listening. We live in a world that loves to talk and does not even know how to listen. A friend of mine said it so well recently. He said, I've realized that basically what I've done my whole life is tried to get the gist of what the person is saying, but more so tried to not forget what I want to say back when they're talking. 
I've listened enough to get the gist, but more so focused on what I want to say and so I don't forget it so I can make sure I get to say what I want to say back. How, man, I'm so guilty of that all the time, all right? But think about this. What do you experience more? God talking to you or God listening to you? I experience, I wish he talked to me more. <laughs> He's like, Wilson, I'm always talking to you. Shut up. Um, <laughs> but think about it. What do we get more from God? A listening ear, a heart that's open to, to, to hear us. So how much more should we emulate him, emulate true love by prioritizing listening? Think of it this way. What do you value more, being understood or understanding others? What do you value more? What do I value more? What do we value more? Being understood or understanding others? This is one of the keys to mercy. And last thing I'll say about mercy is this. We will receive mercy. I think there's two ways that we end up receiving mercy if we're merciful. One way is that we've just created a culture of mercy around us. It's just like the atmosphere. It's the people around us like are around us because we're merciful and they start to show it back. But then another thing is this, God is just. God is just. He will not let you live a life of never receiving mercy if you will commit to be a merciful person. He's a just God. He's not gonna let you walk in constant um, rejection and harshness and... Um, criticism and contempt if you commit in your heart to being merciful towards others. He will make sure that you receive mercy as well. Someone say, sovereignty of God, baby. Okay, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What Jesus is going after here is external purity versus internal purity. He lived in a culture and in a time where the religious leaders especially, but then their followers by default were obsessed with outward appearance and what people thought of them. They were obsessed with um, being clean and admirable on the outside. And you know, some of their heart was good in this. They wanted to be honoring to God. They wanted to live a lifestyle that honored God. But at the same time, they wanted to live a lifestyle that received praise from men. Praise from people, affirmation from people, acceptance from people, you know, high fives from people. And the priorities are wrong there. We're supposed to first and foremost want to have a heart and, a, and an internal world that is pure and admirable for God and then have an internal world that is admirable before people, and then have actions that are admirable before God, and then have actions that are admirable before people. So we just get it way out of order, and, and um, the, the religious leaders and a lot of their followers of Jesus' day had it out of order. So Jesus was calling them to focus. He's saying, I want you to start with internal. And what's the blessing here? You will see God. Come on. That's a end of the world blessing. That's what you expect to happen when you die, right? <laughs> but if you're, when you're pure in heart, you get to see God now. Last one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I love this one. Um, you know, when we say peace, one of the main things I think that comes to our mind is fighting stopping. 
or conflict ending. That's not what Jesus, that's not what a Hebrew thought of when they said peace. The word shalom, which has a big picture meaning to it. It's holistic. It's, um, it's well-being for the entire person. This is, this is the peace Jesus is talking about. And so it's, it's not a passive peace. Like, it's not a peace that stops things only. It replaces things. How many of you guys know who, who are married or in a relationship that there's a big difference between not fighting and connecting? There's a big difference in your relationship between the fight ended, oh, good, and, or the argument ended or whatever, and, wow, I just really love being around them. Like, man, I feel so loved and energized and whatever, you know? Like, those are very different, right? <laughs> this is like, this is the kind of worldly, American, whatever, view of peace. It's really, you know, shallow. It's no fighting. But God's view of peace is so much deeper. It's actually a positive. It's connection. It's well-being. It's prosperity, wholeness, health. So kingdom peacemaking is all about God's blessing replacing conflict, not simply ending conflict. You know, the Jews of Jesus' day, they expected the kingdom of God to come through military force and military power. So essentially, they were thinking of natural means producing supernatural results. How stupid is that? Um, and just a word to all of us about like physical violence. When we use physical violence, we don't ever get kingdom results. Physical violence can stop evil from happening, but that's not the kingdom of God coming. I want lives to be protected, and I think it's okay to use force to protect a life, but that's not the kingdom coming. <laughs> and what Jesus did was he came and he did spiritual violence to the spiritual realm and established the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to do, to bring spiritual violence to the demonic, spiritual violence to sickness, spiritual violence to hopelessness. And the kingdom of God replaces that void in that, in that, that spot. So let me pray for us to close this out. What I'd encourage you to do this week is to memorize one of these four verses. Can you put up the slide, Stella, six through nine? Take a picture of that. I encourage you to memorize one of these. Commit one of these to memory. Father, thank you that there's blessing. For, well, actually, prayer teams, will you come down to the front? We want, to, we want to pray for you. Anything you need prayer for. Blessed are the prayer team members that come swiftly, for they shall receive miracle anointing. Yeah, there you go. Pep in your step. All right, let's pray. Father, you're so good. Help us live this stuff. Thank you that we have new hearts. 
I bless the new heart in every single person in this room. Thank you, God, you gave us new hearts. We don't have to walk this out by willpower. We walk it out by Holy Spirit power. It's designed, we're designed to live this way. It's in our DNA. We're new creations. We were made for this. Now, Lord, we just ask you to rewire our mindsets so that we think this way. Give us grace to walk it out. In Jesus' name, amen.